Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host. On this podcast, we chat with Robert Heal as he talks about his time operating and testing the MiG-29 Fulcrum. He also discusses his time at the Empire Test Pilot School and his current role as project pilot for the German Air Force. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrew interview where you can help us out for as little as $1 per month. Or you can donate at aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. Thank you and enjoy. Okay, Ross, when did you first become interested in aviation? I can't tell you to the point, but I was still living in Munich at that time and there were guys in my class who were building plastic models. And one of them was already pretty good at it at that time. And uh, so somehow I got interested in aeroplanes. And that from then on developed into a very strong interest and focus on them. But I was about, I would say, 10 years old at that time. What year did you join the Air Force? That was in 1980. 1980. So can you tell us some of the basic aircraft you started training on? Yeah, I did. Uh, what we did at that time was, uh, first of all, uh, separate the guys who were talented enough in flying to become front seaters from those who became uh, whizzos or back seaters later on. That was on the Piaggio 149. We call that screening. And after that, uh, we went to the United States to Shepard Air Force Base, NGIPT, Euronato Joint Jet Pilot Training, where we flew T-37s and T-38s. So what kind of flying would you conduct over there? Uh, essentially all the skills that a military pilot needs, from what the Americans called contact flying, i.e. maneuvering the airplane, doing aerobatics, that good stuff, uh, further to instrument flying. And last but not least, formation flying. I think that was the essential parts of the training we got over there. Mm -hmm. Uh, The basic training was a little bit more than a year. Uh, Then uh, we had, I think, about a month uh, of time to spare. And then uh, I got to get back to California on the training on the F-4 Phantom, which uh, was my desire as my first operational airplane. And then after this, I spent another, I think, seven months in California doing training on the F-4. So, Robs, could you tell us some of the ground training you had on the F-4 in America? Well, like on every um, type rating you do, you start, you start with um, academics. Uh, that is aircraft systems, procedures, emergency drills and all that good stuff. Then the next step is going to be simulator training. That's the way we did it too, uh, where you practice all the stuff and where a big focus is put on emergency procedures. And then after that, you start the actual training. Do you remember your first flight in the F-4? I remember, yes, I remember that one. Uh, I remember when we came to the flight line, uh, I was the senior guy in the class, so I got to fly with the senior instructor there. And there was this big, this big, enormous green F4 with a black nose on the flight line. I really liked it from the first sight. It was such a mighty aircraft. And I remember walking around and I kissed it on the black nose and said, (laughs) we're going to have good years together from now on. <laughs> and that's the way it was. That was my first flight in the States. So was the Air Force strictly air-to-air? Uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, we had uh, wings in Germany that flew air-to-surface missions with the F-4 and others that were strictly air-defense. 
it was my wish to uh, join an air, an air defense wing. However, in the training in the States, every pilot was trained both in the air defense and in the air-to-ground role. So when you went back to Germany, what was your first operational squadron? Uh, that was the 711 squadron, uh, 711 Kings in Heaven, uh, of the 71st fighter wing, the Richthofen fighter wing in Wittmundhafen, um, where yeah, I joined as a young fighter pilot. And I think every other fighter pilot will agree with me that the first squadron that you join, somehow it, it puts the biggest print, the biggest mark in you. And that was the same in my case, because... Uh, you get there as a uh, type-rated pilot with a little bit of operational knowledge and understanding. But then in the first years, you learn so much and you have to prove yourself against all the other pilots and so forth. And I really liked it. Mm. I had very good instructors, one of them being Arnold Fartel, whom you also interviewed with regard to the F-104. He taught me everything I needed. And within three years, I got to be a really respected and I think Relatively good fighter pilot. Mm. So what kind of flying would you do on this squadron? Much of it was training in various scenarios from one versus one up to many versus many, uh, which became relatively complicated at a certain point, particularly against the superior uh, adversaries, which uh, situation we were often in with our relatively old F-4s. Um, and one important part of the mission was uh, alert or quick reaction alert, as we called it, where you would sit on alert for 24 hours. Every 24 hours, you would do three flights. There could be either hot alerts or just practice alerts. And that also brought you forward with your knowledge and everything quite a bit. And I liked it very much. How did the F-4 um, fare in DACT against the NATO types, would you say? Yeah, there's always two aspects to that. The one aspect is, of course, the performance of the airplane, the quality of the weapons you carry, and the other part is how good are the air crews, how good are their tactics. So I would say when a very good group of pilots was put together as like a four-ship formation, we could do fairly well. Uh, and of course, we develop tactics against superior airplanes with better weapons. But the bottom line mostly was that we were inferior after all. Mm -hmm. But I think having later on flown the MiG-29 and learning how they trained and everything, I think that our tactics were really, really good. And we would, at least in the beginning, have done pretty well against the East German or Russian adversaries. Mm -hmm. So what weapons was the F-4 carrying at this time? At this time, we only had the gun, the 20mm gun, uh, and the AIM-9 Lima, or earlier even the AIM-9 Bravo version of the AIM-9 Sidewinder. Mm -hmm. So how long did you spend on F-4s, and do you have any or a memorable story you could share with us? I spent, uh, including the training, about four years on the F-4. Memorable stories. Probably many. Lots. <laughs> lots of them. Well... Not really a particular one that springs into my mind, perhaps in a negative sense. Um, there was an intercept mission we did, a training mission, myself and another guy on the QRA, up north in Germany in a low-level training area. And at that time, that was in the late 1980s, a lot of low-level 
traffic was uh, going on in Germany. Brits, Americans, Canadians, Germans, everybody was there. And we did this mission against lots of other airplanes. The sky was black and in between, you know, there were people with uh, twin-engined or single-engined light aircraft flying to the Frisian Islands. Uh, and we were turning and burning. And at some point, we were finishing an engagement and I went on the radio and told the other guy to turn left, but he turned right. And suddenly we ended up head on against each other. And every time one guy made a move, the other guy followed along. <laughs> and at the very last second, I, I made a command again for some reason, which he should have reached him. And we really passed each other at really close range, which should never have happened. And we debriefed afterwards, but... That was a really close call at that time. That's what I remember on the F4. But on a positive token, the great air-to-air dogfighting that was going on at that time. Nowadays, when you fly across Germany, you hardly see any military traffic at all. At that time, it was the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you had a brilliant time. Yeah. Oh, yes. It was absolutely brilliant. And uh, a positive aspect about a pilot's life is, and I must say that, the best friends... In my life, I met during that time the guys who went through the uh, training with me on the F4 and the, for the first years in the squadron. If I had an accident in Australia now and I called one of them, I know on the next day they would be there, even to this day. That's a good friend. Yeah, that's yeah. really good. Yeah. So, Robs, in '91, something very special happened for you. Could you tell us how this happened? Yes, in fact, it was uh, 1990 when it started. Um, it was a, a very, very uh, turbulent time for Germany because the reunification took place and the wall was opened and the border was open. And uh, in, I think it was November 1990, I was uh, on the sea survival training in Nordholz with the Navy. And I was just in the, in the pool training something when uh, the supervisor said, uh, Captain Heal, a phone call for you. So I said, oh, that's not good. And he said, it's your squadron commander. Said, that's even worse. So I went to the phone, and my squadron commander, whom at that time I didn't like very much. We were not in that good terms. But anyway, he said, uh, Herr Heal, do you want to fly the MiG-29? And I hesitated for about a tenth of a second. I said, yes. And then later on, it all got clarified. The story behind it was that um, initially the plan was to scrap all the equipment that the East German Air Force had because we were limited in numbers. We had not enough money. We said it was logistically not possible to maintain the stuff. And however, there was one undersecretary of state uh, in the defense ministry who said, are you guys crazy? They got the MiG-29s. It's one of our biggest and most modern threats. Why would we scrap this airplane without first having a look at it? It's now in our hands. And probably lots of allies who saw something cooking in the Iraq, and the Iraq was also having MiG-29s in its fleet, they said, yes, of course we have to take this opportunity. And then the Air Force decided to do an operational operational testing an operational evaluation of the MiG-29 and they wrapped something up and decided four Air Force pilots should be selected to do a four-month evaluation program and I was the lucky, one of the lucky ones who got to do that. Uh, it was still the former East German Air Force at that time. 
uh, they had ordered uh, a substantial number, I think 36 to begin with. However, uh, during the delivery phase of the airplanes, it started to show that politically things were suddenly happening that were unexpected to the Russians as well. And then they stopped at the number of 24, which was 20 single-seaters and four twin-seaters. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us your first thoughts of the MiG-29? The first thoughts? Well, um, of course, when I was a young fighter pilot, we got uh, intel briefs every day and we saw those black and white photographs oftly, often taken from Norwegian um, maritime surveillance aircraft. And then in 1986, I think... A Russian squadron visited Finland, Risala, and you saw the first moving pictures, uh, colored film of MiG-29s, which I found quite impressive, even though I remember some of the landings were really bad that they made there. Uh, and I thought, hey, this is a pretty cool airplane, but I would never have expected to ever sit in it or even fly it. But that was about to happen, and that was my first thoughts about the MiG-29. So how did the, the ground training for yourself and the pilots even start? Did you have to bring guys from over there? Well, um, actually, it all happened in Preschen, Preschen Air Base, close to the Polish border. And that's where the East German Air Force had based their MiG-29s, as far as possible away from the inner German border, uh, because they didn't want their pilots to be able to watch Western TV and all that kind of stuff. They wanted to really separate all this. And uh, this is where we went. We first went there with a Dornier 28 in the December of 1990 to make a site survey, more or less, and meet the important people, where one of our later instructors, it was a Lieutenant Colonel Rinko, he welcomed us and showed us around and we made some arrangements. And then uh, in January 1991, we traveled over there, the four of us, uh, which was Major Klümper. Uh, he was the oldest and most experienced, a former F-15 exchange pilot. Uh, Major Hankoviak from uh, Fighter Wing 74, also a very experienced fighter weapons instructor. Uh, Wolfgang Michalski, who had been a former instructor of me on the Phantom when we uh, came back from the United States, and myself. We traveled there, and then we went through a 10-day uh, academics training program and the instructors were either technicians or pilots of the former East German Air Force. Oh, right. So was it difficult coming from a Western fighter? It certainly was, if you want to call it difficult, yes, it was very difficult. But to us, it didn't seem difficult. What it seemed was wonderful, fascinating. That's what it was. It was all different. But then at the end of the day, we were talking about a combat aircraft, a fighter jet, and many things are perhaps not identical, but very similar in Russia and in the West. So what we had to adapt to was the language. Two of the four of us were Russian speakers, so they, they, they could read the Russian stuff and tell us what it meant and so forth. And fascinatingly, um, the East German Air Force, they did not work much with checklists like we did, mm -hmm. But we were, of course, we were trained to work with checklists. And I think it's the right way to do it in complicated systems. So we wrote our own checklists out of the Russian and East German books that we got. And with those self-made 
checklists regarding emergency and normal procedures and how do you uh, figure uh, like even air pressures uh, from the Tor system that the Russians used into the uh, what did we hectopascal that we are using all these things uh, we got stuff ready so that we could operate on the airplane and yes it was difficult it was complicated there were many many things to master but we were so enthusiastic and we were such a great team to work together and Frank Klimper was a great leader as well so we achieved it with actually no big deal no problem yeah. so essentially you adapted your own tactics from the F4 onto the MiG-29 well that was the next step uh, actually this um, tactical evaluation program it was built up in a building block principle building block One was learn to fly the airplane, learn to understand the airplane and tell us how the airplane works. Then look at how the East German Air Force trained their people. What tactics did they use? How did they fly? Step two. Step three, adapt your own knowledge and tactics on this platform. Step four, now that you know how to operate the platform operationally and tactically, Go ahead and meet your opponents from the West, like the best the West had to offer, like F-15s, F-16s. That was the four steps of, uh, of this evaluation program. And we were at that time just doing the first one, followed by the flying training and adapting our own tactics. And not only F-4 tactics, but remember Frank Klümper, he had flown the F-15. He brought in a lot of the F-15 knowledge into the flying we did. So... Were you shocked about how primitive the MiG-29 systems were? No, not at all. Uh, they were not primitive. Uh, in many ways, it was really an excellent and fantastic aeroplane with a high degree of uh, redundancy, uh, with quite a few very modern systems to it. Uh, the big difference really was um, that their principle of operation was a lot different to ours. We aimed at flying at least 180 hours a year, do a lot of air combat, dissimilar air combat, all that kind of stuff. And we got really, really good at that through lots of flying and training and practice. Whereas, uh, at least in the East uh, German Air Force, people flew maybe 60 or 70 hours a year, which kept their level of, um, of practice I think, to a moderate level. And the, the next thing was, so the, what they needed was a simple platform that was not too complicated to operate that gave them a lot of safety and redundancy and so forth. And that was forgiving. And that's what, what the MiG-29 really was. On the other hand, the whole, the whole principle of tactical operation was the pilot was only, how should I say, sort of a robot who who reacted to orders he got from the ground, which, which went to really great extremes. I didn't see that so much in the East German pilots, but I read of a story where a Russian general flew a MiG-23 without much preparation, so something went wrong. The airplane was in flames and he had a fire in the engine. And instead of ejecting what, what every Western pilot would do in that case, He was asking the guy on the ground, should I eject? Should I eject? 
but he got no answer and then he crashed with the airplane. That's what we have to imagine what the way of thinking was. I am obeying orders from the ground. I'm not taking own decisions. I don't see the whole scenario on my radar or on my displays. I only see what I need to see to be able to follow the orders from the ground. That was their principle of operation. And the consequence out of this was that the man-machine interface on an operational level, like radar picture and all that kind of thing, it didn't need to be very good and it wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. other than ours. We were trained to, you know, take our own decisions, make our own air picture, maneuver our formation, take decisions, react to things real quickly. That's what we were trained for. And we were good at that mm -hmm. at that time. I, as a young pilot, I flew 240 hours a year. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that, that's training you and compare that to 60 hours in the East German efforts. You just barely keep your standards. You know? So how much uh, ground training uh, did you have before you actually got your first flight? Ten days Literally for ten everything. Days. Wow. And I remember it was really funny. It was completely different to the way the training was done in the United States, you know, where uh, big view graphs were shown on the wall and uh, professional trainers uh, showed you how the systems work. And, so. and here it was like in a school, you know, we were sitting at tables with uh, with files in front of us writing up things and in front of us was one of the East German pilots, an instructor who himself read from a handwritten file that he had written during his training in Russia. Oh. This was how the training went but it was at the end of the day quite efficient and right. it was okay for us yeah. and from that we built up our own knowledge base. So I want to know about your first flight. I'm guessing it was a two-seater. Of course, it was a two-seater. Uh, the I would say the training program we came up with was, it looked sporty in the beginning. It said three flights in a twin-seater and then uh, already the first solo flight. Uh, I don't know how many flights with instructor we had done on the F4 before we could do our solo, but certainly five or six. Anyway, um, at some point... There was the first day where we were, we were about to fly on twin seaters. Of course, the first guy supposed to fly was uh, Frank Klimper, our boss. But his airplane, for some reason, was not ready. So everything shifted a little bit. And then the first guy to get to fly was Hank Hankoviak, the other major. And um, of course, we were all waiting by the flight line when he taxied back in. You know, I mean, even seeing... The MiG-29 takes it back in and hearing it and smelling it and everything. It was so incredibly exciting. So the engine stopped, the canopy opened, out came Hank with his uh, Russian helmet and outfit and stuff. And we said, hey, Hank, what was it like? How was it? And he said, hey, easy. It's a jet. <laughs> and he was right. You know, Sorry. we all expected it to be so different, but then it wasn't. Many things were different, but on a lower scale, you know, every, every label in the cockpit was in Russian mm -hmm. and the language system, you know, and that was one of the modern features of the MiG-29. It had a system that if something went wrong, not only did you have an indication, a visual indication, but there was also a voice information system telling you what went wrong and telling you what you had to do first in order to get out of the situation. So that was really good. One of the really good things. But he said, it's a jet. 
and I quote that a lot when I uh, talk to people about that time and so forth. But that's what it was like. It was not overly complicated. It was a relatively easy step to fly the MiG-29. And my own first flight, let me just say that real quickly, I was really lucky. I think I got the very best of all the instructors they had. His name was Hartmut Kuhn, uh, nicknamed Kuno. He was extremely smart, very good in mathematics and stuff, a very quick learner and a real cool guy in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. So I had a great time flying with him and after three flights in the twin-seater, I was more than ready to go flying. And my first flight was on the 23rd of January, 1991. Wow. <laughs> so, could you feel the power difference compared to the first oh. <laughs> Well, of course, there was a big power difference, and it was breathtaking. I do think that uh, the first takeoff was demonstrated from the backseat by Kuno, and I was really, I mean, I was flabbergasted by this excess power, you know, First of all, the liftoff was after what seemed like split seconds, very few seconds, and then he would rotate and climb vertically for several thousand meters. Uh, everything was in meters and kilometers per hour before he went to level flight, and it was really breathtaking. It's like the angels were pushing you. So the power, the excess power compared to the F4 was enormous. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us some of the handling characteristics of MiG-29? Yeah, in the beginning that was a little bit... It took some time to get used to for several reasons. The first thing, very obvious in the cockpit, was there was a huge control stick, like in all Russian aeroplanes, and, you know, the deflections were really big and the forces were really big and you could feel the springs and mechanical stuff in it. It was... Not very nice compared to like the Phantom, which had a pretty nice control system. So that was the first thing. Then you got airborne and you held the stick in your hand and suddenly you felt the stick always going like this, moving. That was because the dampers in the airplane, it was a relatively highly damped airplane, they were working actively in the control circuit. So you could feel it on the stick. That took some getting used to. And then last but not least... Uh, when you wanted to really move the aeroplane, you really got to move that stick. But once you understood that, like in close combat, that you had to throw the stick around big time, then the airplane was brilliant. And you could get used to it nicely after a while, uh, even though under objective criteria, the handling qualities were not to the standards that we put on aeroplanes on the western side, mm -hmm. I can say. But as a pilot, after a while, you could compensate and you could get along with it quite well. Mm -hmm. How would you say the cockpit was um, laid out? Was it better than the Phantom? Well, the Phantom has a nice cockpit after all, but it's a 19, early 1960s kind of cockpit. The MiG-29, I like the cockpit from the very first moment. It's well arranged. In a similar structure, like all Russian cockpits, you fly a Sukhoi aeroplane. It looks basically the same. You recognize many things, like you fly different French aeroplanes. You also recognize things real easily. So I like the cockpit, um, although the man-machine, or nowadays there's a human-machine interface, interface, it was not definitely not up to our Western standards, partly due to the uh, reasons I explained you earlier, that it wasn't really necessary for the pilot to work his system a lot because he got all his, his orders from the ground. 
But also there were many switches and uh, controls that were, in my opinion, more complicated than they needed to be. But all in all, um, it was a good cockpit. Mm -hmm. A little bit small. It was built for the 1 meter 75 average Russian pilot. I was definitely too tall for it, but I just... <laughs> People often ask me, how do you fit in? And I said, I don't know, but I fit in. <laughs> you know, when I wanted to see the uh, uh, the landing gear indication, I always had to move my knee to even see it. But it worked. Mm -hmm. So what was some of your roles on the MiG-29? Because you had a few, didn't you? Uh, yeah, well, for the first four months, uh, I was part of the evaluation team. Uh, I think we were very successful, and the greatest success was that in one of our first reports, we recommended to the Air Force leaders and the politicians, this is the best airplane we ever had in the inventory of the German Air Force. Do not throw it away. Keep it in the inventory. And that's what they did. Um, at the end of the day, it uh, worked as a regular air defense fighter. That was its official role. Okay. But I think at least 50% in reality was that we were a training aid for others. You know, everybody wanted to fight against the MiG-29 and everybody said, well, a MiG-29 flown by Western pilots who know what they're doing, that's probably the greatest threat you will ever face. And that became the role of the MiG squadron after, I would say, 1994, 1995. Up to that point, our primary role was, and with hindsight, I find that a little bit sad, Uh, and it was due to a political decision that the East German pilots should be enabled to carry on in the West German Air Force. Many of them didn't even want that. They said, no, I'm, I'm not going to work for our former f foe. Uh, well, I'm not really, because they were indoctrinated much more than we were. Okay. And of course, I mean, when you're, a, I say, a communist mind... And all of a sudden, they tell you, no, now you can work for us and fight for the against the exact opposite. I'm exaggerating. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, some guys said, no, no, no. I, I was not born into this world and I don't want this. I quit. There were others who wanted to continue. But then after um, again and again, they got kicked out because they had worked for the Secret Service, spying on their buddies in the squadron. It was all very, you know, networked, you know. Their greatest concern was that a uh, East German pilot might have flown a MiG-29 to the West. That would have been the catastrophe of catastrophes. Mm -hmm. This is why in their system, they everybody surveyed everybody. But after unification, the political decision was that whoever had signed a contract with the Secret Service to spy on others could not continue as an officer oh. in the German Air Force. So... Whenever they found files, even though they had tried to get away and get rid of the files, whenever they found a file about one of those guys, he was kicked out right away. And so the group of East German pilots shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And that was also a pity from a camaraderie point of view. You know, in my old squadron in the West, there was great camaraderie and people stuck together a lot. And there, of course, everybody was waiting, well, who will be next? And There was never a big trust between the Western guys and the Eastern guys, and not even big trust between the Eastern guys, until it all sorted out after a few years. So it could be quite frosty at times. Yes, 
Yes, it was. Uh, on the surface, everybody tried to keep it cool, but uh, below the surface, it was certainly frosty. Plus, um, when I was uh, allowed to return to the squadron after, I think, when we finished the evaluation, I went back to Wittmund for three or four months and I applied to fly the MiG-29 again. So they let me fly the 29. And from there on, our task was to bring the East German pilots to a level that allowed them to operate in the West German Air Force as fighter pilots from then on. Um, and it was a challenging task because where they started from was certainly in many respects uh, on a lower level than the level we wanted to see from them. And probably the biggest challenge was to teach them to take their own decisions and not to wait for somebody on the ground to take the decision for them. Some guys, like my instructor Kuno, he was brilliant. He, he picked that up and he, he got that into his head really quickly. He, he learned English by himself, you know, without ever getting lessons. He, he, he picked it up and then after four years, they found a file on him that he had been a spy really? and he had to be kicked, <laughs> which was to me a really great pity. But anyway, that was the way it was. It was very tough. It was very tough for the East German guys. Um, we did a lot of tough training with them and we had to kick out a lot of the guys because they just were not up to it. That was not very pleasant. Yeah. You would rather have built up guys, you know, young guys and made them become good fighter pilots rather than kicking out old guys. That was not a nice task. In the long run, the positive effect was that when old guys were kicked out, new guys came in and they were always experienced fighter pilots from a Phantom Squadron uh, in Western Germany. So the capability in total of the squadron got better and better. And at the end, I think there were maybe three or four East German pilots left and all the rest were guys mm -hmm. from the West. So what squadron were the MiG-29s in? Um, it changed over the time. Uh, when I came to the uh, squadron in 1990 for the first time, it was Fighter Wing 3 of the East uh, German Air Force. Uh, then we became Erprobungsgeschwader mig 9 Test Wing MiG-29, and then we became a Fighter Wing 73. So you mentioned earlier that you used to get all the Western guys coming over. Like, how often would this happen? Um, I would say it was kind of an exponential development. In the beginning, it was very, very slow, and just singularly guys came in and try to help us uh, bring everybody up to speed. And then uh, at a very quick pace, more and more of them came in. And, and also the, the operational capability of the squadron then exponentially became better. And one guy who really brought, I think, brought the squadron forward a lot was Spanky. Spanky was an American exchange pilot, a really brilliant instructor and very brilliant operational brain. And I could observe, by that time I was already test pilot over here in Manching, that he really brought the squadron forward a lot operationally with his ideas and his concepts and so forth. How did it yeah. fare against the F-18s, the F-15s? Well, um, the principle was really simple. Uh, due to the fact that the radar of the MiG-29, it wasn't bad as such, 
But the human-machine interface, it was so poor that it was extremely hard for the pilot to figure out what was going on 40 miles, 50 miles away from him. Whereas the F-15s, foremost, first and foremost, F-18s, F-16s, they had much better situational awareness due to their radars and so forth. And they also had a little bit superior weapons, whereas we were not fully clear at that time how good like the AA-10, the R-27 uh, radar-guided missile really was. Anyway, um, it quickly turned out that what we needed to do with the MiG-29 is confuse the guys and trouble them in sorting out what we were doing until we ended up in the visual range. Mm-hmm. Once we were in the visual range, we were usually ending up as the winners. Because A, the MiG-29 was from its maneuvering potential more or less equal uh, to the Western types. Plus, we had a system that was superior to what the others had, and that was the R-73 missile, in Western terms, air-to-air 11, together with a helmet-mounted display. The Russians had that already in the early 1980s. Everybody in the West was surprised, and it was a brilliant system. Because you needed not point your aircraft to the adversary, but within about a 45-degree left and right uh, angle, it sufficed to turn your head, superimpose a symbol on your helmet-mounted display with the enemy, assign a missile, hear the tone, fire the missile, and the missile would go there and kill him before he could even acquire you. And that was such a huge advantage that was a bad surprise for the Americans and everybody else uh, that gave us a really big advantage in the visual in the visual arena or as the Americans put it in the phone booth and everybody nobody wanted to meet us in the phone booth because no. that's where we were, we were good at I think one of the biggest hindrance for the big 29 was the smoky engines does this really affect it in combat to some degree certainly because of course when you select reheat the fuel consumption goes up very quickly, plus you accelerate very quickly to high transonic or supersonic speeds. So yeah, of course, you always have to think, do I use reheat or not? When you don't use it, you're visible to others earlier than if you weren't smoking. It was a similar thing on the Air Force. So yes, it's a disadvantage, but I don't know whether it was so major. I couldn't really tell you. It's a factor, but I do not think it's a real big factor. So I have to ask for our British viewers, did you ever go up against um, the tornadoes or the RAF in the MiG-29? We went up against everything, uh, in particularly part three and four of uh, the operational testing we did. And I remember we had ferried the airplanes from Preschen to Wittmund for building block number two. And we told everybody, hey guys, we are going to test our MiG-29s here and we want let me call it clean conditions. We want to do our stuff without anybody disturbing us. And we will work from then to then in this and this area. And guess what happened? We entered the area and the first guys who came in were British Air Force. Jumping us uh, against all agreements and stuff, you know. But I mean, they were... Initially, we were a bit angry because they were sort of hindering us from doing what we intended to do. And then we ended a very short engagement with them. And it was amazingly simple with the MiG-29 to maneuver against airplanes like the Tornado. The Tornado 
when they did their best in a defense turn, it was for you just like you flew a rejoin, you know, on a guy for formation flag. It was real easy, incredibly easy. A little bit harder on the F4, but uh, then, of course, against an F16, F18, those were at the same level. But to us as Phantom pilots, it all seemed so easy in the beginning against second-generation jets. Yes, we did that quite a bit. Uh, when we did missile firing in the Irish Sea uh, from Valley in 1993, I, I was there. I wasn't allowed to fire. The test pilots from here did it. But I was an observer from the squadron and uh, I was interested in what they were doing and I supported them a little bit when they had problems with the systems or whatever. And uh, what I got to do at that time was fly sorties against uh, the British operational testers on Tornados, on Phantoms, on F3s, everything. And they were extremely professional. I learned a lot about the MiG-29 from them because they understood some systems very very well. So, yes, I flew against them. At that time, I did what they wanted because they wanted to acquire information and data and stuff. But I think uh, their operational testers were at a very, very high standard of knowledge and competency. So what kind of flight testing would you do on the MiG-29? Um, yeah, that was there were two parallel efforts going on here. Um, it started in uh, 1991 also, or even 1990 already, here in Manching, where they did a very technical assessment of the aeroplane, like how does the radar work, uh, how do the flares work, and all that kind of stuff. How, do, how does the IFF, the interrogation friend foe system work, and all that kind of stuff. And I know that very much of this information was given to our allies who used it to their good advantage, for instance, in the first Iraq war. Uh, whereas what we did in Preshen in this operational assessment, that was very much operationally oriented, much more dynamic. That's the character of the traditional testing work here and the operational testing in the Air Force. When I was here as a test pilot later on, all we did on the MiG-29, or most what what we did on the MiG-29 was related to avionics, where we modified some of the systems of the airplane. And most of all, um, at some point, the Air Force decided that the MiG-29s were to take part in flag exercises in the United States. However, the legs of the airplane, i.e. the range, was not sufficient for that. So um, we uh, started a program that was called IKO-2, which enabled the airplane to fly with three external tanks and it got uh, embedded GPS, uh, INS uh, navigation solution, essentially everything it required to be able to cross the big pond and fly to Canada and the United States. That was much of the work I was concerned with here. Another part of it was acceptance flying. Uh, the airplanes were, went through um, the regular uh, maintenance intervals uh, of major maintenance over here with, uh, it was then I think called DASA, uh, essentially nowadays Airbus. And then when the airplanes, they, they are disintegrated to a high degree and then put together again. And then you always do acceptance flying in order to make sure everything is pr 
proper and right. I did those acceptance flights then, which were really interesting because um, due to the fact that we had to fly the MiG-29 in clean configuration, i.e. no centerline tank and relatively little fuel, it only carried 3,460 kilograms of fuel internally compared to about 5,000 on the Eurofighter, which has the same empty weight. Um, and a very challenging program uh, during these flights, which included uh, acceleration at low altitude up to almost Mach 1 to change the trims, which was quite complicated, and took a lot of fuel because the fuel consumption of the MiG-29 in low altitude and high airspeed was enormous. Then you would climb up to probably around 40,000 feet and accelerate all the way up to Mach 1.9er and then... Uh, how do you call it, uh, retard either throttle to idle quickly and bring it back up to reheat again and the other one, and even accelerating to Mark 1.9. Also took a lot of fuel, of course, and then we descended, did all the other kind of checks, and then waited until the minimum fuel light came on at 550 kilograms. So that was a short, like about 50 minutes, but very intense mm -hmm. flight profile. And then... We did some stuff also with uh, Russian equipment that we got our hands on, but not very much mm -hmm. in order to figure out how that worked. But I can't go into detail with that. Of course. So did you ever conduct any live firings? Uh, we did that. Um, a little bit of it during our operational testing, whereas uh, we had no clearance at that time to fire missiles, which we, of course, would have liked to do. Uh, but later on. All kinds of missiles were fired from the MiG-29. I fired a few, but not uh, as a part of the testing we did. What we did in 1991 was we fired the gun, which was by itself extremely impressive. It was, a, it was called Geisha 30, a 30-millimeter 30 uh, cannon. And I remember we fired against the dart. You know what the dart is? It was towed by F-100s over the North Sea and I, I was aiming and uh, ready to fire and I fired and it was so bloody noisy. The muzzle was right next to your left ear more or less and you could see all the muzzle fire and the vibration and the noise. It was so enormous. I was terrified and I let go of the trigger and then I thought everything is still there in one piece. You couldn't read any instruments, nothing. The vibration was gigantic. And then I thought, okay, that's probably the way it's supposed to do. And I fired again, and it was the same thing, but you got used to it. Compared to the F4 with a 20-millimeter uh, six-barrel gun, which was like, very smooth. This was <laughs> terrible. Uh, I didn't like it very much. It was, as I said, it was noisy vibrating. Missile firing, yeah, they did lots of missile firings, and uh, particularly the AA-11, the R-73 Archer, impressed everybody because you could launch it with the helmet mounted side. It had thrust vector control. You could see it launch from the airplane, go many lengths in front of the airplane, and then on the spot, turn by 90 degrees or so and fly towards the enemy. So this was an extremely, enormously capable missile. Funny enough, though, uh, we did a lot of testing also regarding um, countermeasures. And one of the countermeasures against such missiles is flares. The Russian airplanes have a very smart uh, flare launching uh, system where the flares, not like in our systems, go 
out to the rear and separate very quickly from the airplane, which makes it easier for a seeker head to distinguish between the real target and the flare. The Russians fire their flares at a 45-degree angle in the flight path of the airplane, and then their flares would separate to the back, which made it a lot harder for the missiles to distinguish between the flare and the real aircraft. However, what we found out was that our own missiles were doing pretty well against our own flares, but not against the Russian ones. <laughs> and the Russian missiles did pretty good against their own flares, but not so good against our own. Yeah. So I think everybody learned a lot in that respect from the trials we did. Robs, was there any actual realistic plans to upgrade the MiG-29? Not uh, by the German Air Force. Um, I think they always uh, regarded the MiG-29 as just an interim uh, between the Phantom and the Eurofighter, which was coming up and which uh, had its first flight already in 1994. Um, but there were no serious plans keeping the MiG-29s in the inventory or even upgrading them. And to some degree, I think it wouldn't have made sense either to have two-fourths of fifth-generation airplanes operating in parallel. Some nations do that. I know that uh, the MiG-29s were, at the end, expensive to operate. The flying hour was expensive because the logistics were expensive. So from a financial point of view, it makes se made sense at some point to say, okay, we terminate flying now. But as you know, the Russians, they did upgrade the MiG-29 considerably, but not the German Air Force. They never considered that. So how many hours did you get on MiG-29s? Oh, I couldn't even tell you, but uh, it must be probably six or seven hundred. Overall, did you enjoy your time on the MiG? Very much so. Uh, I, I'm sure I can say that every pilot who flew the MiG-29 loved it because it was such a powerful, such a safe, such a forgiving aircraft, very maneuverable for pilots who like to hand fly the airplanes, it was not perfect, but close to perfect. perfect. <laughs> and with hindsight, I really, I mean, I appreciate the fact that I could fly it at all, that I was one of the first Western pilots who could intensively test the airplane. And uh, I was very, very sad when I did my last flight in April 2004. Very lucky man indeed. So you also attended the Empire Test Pilot School. Yes, How I did. did you get selected for this? Um, quite frankly, uh, at a very early time, when I was still a young boy, and uh, my parents moved from Munich to Ingolstadt. My father, he was working for the newspaper, and he, he came over here because he got a good job here. We were suddenly close to this test center, and essentially every free minute I had, I spent going out here, watching airplanes go out and land and so forth. And uh, one of the Transall um, flight engineers working here, he saw me sit close to the, uh, to the uh, runway watching airplanes. And in the evening playing tennis, he said, did I see you there at the, air at the airfield today, sitting there when we landed? I said, yes. He said, yeah, I'm flying the C-160. Are you interested in aviation? Yes, of course. Would you like to perhaps fly once and he took me out to the flying club where I could fly on a on a motor aircraft and I saw you can learn to fly gliders there and that guy brought me into the flying club where I started flying gliders and then 
uh, a great thing happened. First of all, I, I got contact to several of the test pilots of the test uh, center here, which I found very interesting, all the things they did. And then one day they did test pilot training on aerobatic aeroplanes out in the flying club on a Sunday. And then one of the older test pilots, you know, he came down with his slim twin-seat aircraft and said, hey, you, I have some fuel left in the aeroplane. Would you like to join me for a flight? I was a bit flabbergasted. I said, of course. And then this guy, you know, he straps me in and he makes the straps real tight. I'm wondering, oh, he makes it really tight. <laughs> But then, you know, we take off and the next I know is we're inverted and I'm com completely confused, you know. But then he puts us through some aerobatics and I thought, well, this is really the greatest thing I've ever done. And that was probably the day when I decided, hey, these test pilots, they, they can do all this stuff. They fly fighter jets, they fly aerobatic planes, they do inverted spinning, all the I want to do that. That's when I decided to do it. And then I found out you need to be an engineer to be able to become a test pilot in Germany. This is why I did the uh, aeronautical engineering college. And uh, that's the time when I decided I want to come here. I always applied, applied, applied. My bosses never liked it because the test pilots, they are not very much liked in the operational air force. But I insisted and eventually my last boss said, okay, in that case then, go. And I got through the screening here. I got selected and then went through the Empire Test Pilot School in 1995. So what's uh, with some of the aircraft you flew over there? Oh, we flew, I think, uh, in that year, 14 different types, all kinds of airplanes. And you were always uh, current as a captain on three different airplanes. And uh, to me, this was the Hawk, which was the workhorse, more or less, the Jaguar and the Back 111. That was the three types I was qualified on and lots of other airplanes, like Tucano. We flew ultralights. We flew uh, Bulldogs. I don't remember all of them. We flew Airbus, essentially everything you can think of. So how long were you over there for? Uh, the course took one year. One year. Yeah. Very intensive, I'm guessing. Extremely intense. The most intense year I've had in my life, but also certainly one of the best years because the learning curve is so steep and you're so much smarter when you come out than before that after all, I found it enjoyable, but it was incredibly hard work. And you've had the chance to fly as a project pilot for many types. How, how did this actually happen for you? Uh, that's the way we do things here. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, the problem is that test pilot training is very expensive. It takes a long time. And other than nations like Sweden, they send two guys every year to test pilot training and they have a high refreshment rate. We don't do that in Germany. We train test pilots and then use them for lots of different uh, tasks which has its advantages and it has its disadvantages. And due to that principle, you get to do many different things here. And uh, when there's a project coming up, usually the guy with the most sensible background is picked for that. But sometimes, you know, like uh, on the Global 5000, which I have been the project pilot for for a while, all the transport guys were so busy with their A400, they said, we, we don't have time. I had time and I said, I would be interested. So I got to do it, and that it was similar with many other things. Mm -hmm. yeah. You were lucky enough to fly the Typhoon as well. Can you tell us what this was like actually to fly? Yeah, I was really lucky. I got uh, to join the program in a relatively early stage. Uh, I think my first flight was in 1998, 
and I worked on the project already before that. And the best thing that can happen to a test pilot is to be involved in development testing. And the development testing for the Typhoon was going on here at a very high pace at that time. I flew a lot, I wrote a lot of different reports. The work was extremely interesting because, you know, the Typhoon, it was a big cake, like uh, radar, flight control system, hydraulics, weapons, all those slices, they were divided between the nations. And the slices the Germans had was attack and ident system, flight control system, which was the royal discipline, the most complicated one, uh, and the landing gear. Mm -hmm. And so we did all the testing here related to those uh, components. The most interesting one certainly being the flight control system. Because, as you probably know, uh, to enhance the performance in the supersonic regime, they built the Eurofighter highly unstable in pitch, so unstable that the pilot without the flight control system could never fly the airplane because it's just too unstable. And that to build an airplane like that, that involves a lot of very complicated issues in the flight control system to really make it sure and reliable. And we did hard work to do to achieve that. And of course, for an engineer and pilot. That's the best thing you can get. Yes. So how long did you fly Typhoon for? I started in 1998 and still fly it now. Oh. I'm probably the oldest Typhoon pilot <laughs> in Germany. That's something. <laughs> yeah, 57. Uh, and uh, to me, it's the sporty part of my job and I still love it. It's also like the MiG-29, but even better. A lot of excess power, very nice to fly. You know, it cuts through the air. You, it's very three-dimensional. When you accelerate at low altitude, it's exhilarating how quickly it, it accelerates. It's just unbelievable. And the acceptance profiles we fly, they're very busy. Um, but there's always some time left to do things you like and enjoy it. And I do enjoy it a lot. So overall, do you enjoy your time as a project pilot? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's uh, In a way, it's very hard work. And it's the hardest part is not the flying, not the report writing. The hardest part is... Uh, persuading people about doing the right things, taking the right decisions. Uh, that's, I'm tempted to say, not always easy. It's never easy, I must say. Uh, I think not enough people listen to what we have to say, uh, but that's the way it is. So just a few personal questions for you, Bronx. Um, do you have any hobbies? Yeah, I'm, uh, the best thing that God gave me is interest for most everything. Uh, I'm very curious, um, but the hobbies I have is I do a little bit of uh, sport flying. I do instructing in the flying cup a little bit. Um, I read a lot. I like jazz music, scotch whiskey, good wines, <laughs> cigars. That's not really hobbies, but it's things I like. And uh, probably my most time-consuming hobby is beekeeping. That's very unusual. I've never heard that one before. <laughs> well, yeah, it may be, but it's it's really fascinating. It's it's not so far away from aviation because you must have a very good knowledge, but knowledge is not enough. You must know how to do things right and take the right decisions and always situations that you haven't seen of and you got to cope with. I really like it. And it's nature. I'm I'm a man who likes to be close to nature. I'm a country potato <laughs> and that suits me quite well. This could be a difficult one for you. Sure. Is there a favorite aircraft you have flown? That's really difficult. 
But what I can say is the MiG-29 is definitely one of my favorites. And of course, the Phantom, because that's the one I grew up with, more or less. The first one I kissed on his black nose, remember? So probably the Phantom, uh, the MiG-29, the Eurofighter is a very nice airplane to fly, even though its character is different, being so digital and being so networked and all that. And then a fantastic airplane is the extra 300 aerobatics mm-hmm. plane. You feel like it's part of your body. You know, it reacts to the slightest uh, mistake. Well, that's probably the ones I like most. Is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown? Lots of. Uh, probably the ones I've never put my hand on is World War II fighters. And of those, maybe the Focke Wolf 190. I would love to fly that one. But I'll probably never get a chance to do it. You never know. <laughs> we never know, though. And finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? Well, generally, I'm not so extrovert about it. Even though, as you can see now, when I get enthusiastic again and think back of all the great things I was able to do, uh, I don't get sick at all. And, uh, well, yeah, it's, it's just it's fantastic. And I consider myself extremely lucky to have been able to do all this and still do it at the age of 57. That's, isn't that great? It is. So Rob, thank you very much for being on the show. Michael, my pleasure. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.